And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson is next. And hello there, in Stratford, Ontario today, I'm Peter Mansbridge, and uh, welcome to Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. We call it Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth because... We're always looking for those kind of moments, issues, plays that are impacted at times by, well, by the way they are presented to the public. And are they presented in such a way that it, you know, encourages you to think one way about whatever that impact uh, of that issue is. So we have a number of those on tap for today, and we're going to start off with Ukraine because Clearly, the most dominant issue of the week on Ukraine was the revelation of the atrocities that have taken place there. And as far as we're concerned, the Russians executed cold-heartedly a number of Ukrainian citizens. It could be in the hundreds. Shot them in the back of the head, their hands tied behind them, their legs tied women raped and then murdered. I mean, there are horrible scenes, and we've seen the images. So for the world that is supporting Ukraine, there is no question about that. None at all. And there's lots of evidence to prove it, including satellite imagery taken a couple of days before with the bodies lying in the streets and the Russian troops still in present in that area. Now, the Russians say, no, 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 we didn't do this. This is fake. This was done by the Ukrainians themselves to make it look like we did it. Now, we can prove that to be wrong. However, don't take away from the impact that the Russian statement has, because not only are there still a lot of Russians who believe in everything Putin says, but social media in China, and to some degree in India, is towing the Russian line. Now think about that. That's like, you know, bordering on two-thirds of the world's population buying the Russian story. Now they both can't be right. And we're pretty confident in ours, and so are all the members of the United Nations, uh, with the exception of Russia and a couple of its syncophant countries. So is this a classic example of smoke, mirrors, and the truth, Bruce? And how does it impact public opinion? I know you just came out of the field uh, in Canada about Ukraine and probably just before the revelation of these stories, but you still would have an idea and impact assessment of, of what this means. Yeah, Peter, I think that there's no doubt that Canadians will have seen these images. They were everywhere. Uh, on the traditional media, the legacy media, as some like to call it, and also all over social media. And they're extraordinarily difficult for people to see, whether it's the videos or the still shots. And um, they will only firm the resolve of most Canadians that we have to stick with the, uh, this fight, stick with Ukraine, do as much as we can. I don't think they're going to change the calculus in people's minds about what nature of intervention. It feels to me that people have 
by and large in Canada decided that that's going to be up to the military leadership and the political leadership to make those judgments and to do it as part of an alliance of countries will still make the most sense. Our latest poll shows that three quarters of Canadians still believe that in the short term or in the medium term, Russia will end up losing its bid to control Ukraine. Either it will take it over for a period of time and then have to give it up because the resistance will be so strong or that, um, they just won't succeed in the first instance. Um, so the fact that this has gone on as long as it has, when many people might have surmised that it was going to be a short uh, attack and a takeover, has um, has not made Canadians feel like, well, okay, Russia is really gaining the upper hand and gaining momentum. It hasn't, on the other hand, really moved the yardsticks the other ways. Canadians have been convinced that Putin is going to lose this war at some point in some fashion. And they also believe that he's, you know, 53%, which is, I think, up a little bit from our last poll, I think he's going to be gone from the leadership in, in a couple of years. But to get to your point about smoke and mirrors, a couple of things really struck me. Um, one is that we're watching in the United States. I'm, I'm paying close attention to the effects of some of the disinformation that happens on social media. And I'm seeing clips of people who are being asked whether they think that Putin is worse than Biden and things like that. And it's shocking in our modern world how many people can be seduced by the kind of blatant disinformation that you referred to that Russia is putting out on the airways. And I say on the airwaves, but really on the internet um, and how far and wide that can travel and how it can find some uh, root system, even in democracies, uh, free democracies like ours. Um, I don't see much evidence of it in Canada yet, but I think it's naive if we imagine that it, won't reach some Canadians and won't convince some Canadians that, well, maybe there's another side to this story. And I think that's one of the questions that at the heart, the last point I wanted to make is we're debating a new law in parliament right now about regulation of content in Canada. And it's a, it's a good debate to have. It's a good debate to have in a, in a kind of a democracy like ours, because there's no perfect answer. Uh, but uh, what's going on in Russia and the Russian disinformation effort, the latest in a series of Russian disinformation efforts, is a pretty stark reminder that if we don't have some guardrails over what travels the Internet, that it can really confuse and poison um, our societies in ways that um, weren't really very possible with traditional media. And it can happen fast. I, I, I want to uh, pursue that that Ottawa development in just a minute, but one last question on, on on Canadians' attitudes. Can you sense from what you did how deep the resolve is? Because this could go on for quite a while. You know, at, at the beginning of this, we all talked about, well, it could be over in days and weeks. Then it became sort of weeks or months. And now I heard yesterday the um, U.S. Uh, head of the Joint uh, Chiefs of the Military saying this could go on for years, it could go on for years, maybe even decades. Well, that's a big commitment from all the countries that are supporting Ukraine, if in fact anything like that is true. Can you sense how deep the resolve is on the part of Canadians? I think it's pretty deep, but I think the question is really relevant. Uh, you mentioned in one of our conversations a few weeks ago, Peter, that eventually... 
public attention will shift to something else. Uh, pictures will be different. There'll be fewer of them. Other stories will come to the fore, will capture the public imagination. And I think that's, uh, it would be foolish not to believe that that's going to happen. We live in a world where some people call it an attention economy. Uh, there are so many subjects and purveyors of information that are vying for public attention. So that competition is constant and it's unrelenting. And there's going to be a certain measure of people saying, unless there's something new in this story, I'm going to be distracted by something else. That doesn't mean that their resolve to support Ukraine against Russia will wither. And the reason I say that is that unlike other conflicts, um, where you could say that over time, the public will feel like the price being paid is too high relative to the sense of progress. Uh, there aren't a lot of Canadian lives being put. Um, well, there are Canadian lives obviously being put at risk in some respects, but we don't have troops on a battlefield and body bags coming home. And you and I remember the corrosive effect on support for the Vietnam involvement as American um, Young men mostly went to a war there and bodies came back and you could see the effect on the political support levels. The second thing is that um, sometimes the cost to treasury uh, of participation in something like this can be a, a corroding factor over time. I don't see much evidence that that's a, a challenge right now, in part because people don't really pay that much attention anymore to what things cost in terms of when governments decide to spend. And if anything, we've seen a boost in support for uh, military spending through this period. So the things that would normally, um, I guess the two parts to your question, will people still be paying as much attention? Probably not. Um, will they still support the uh, the effort uh, by Ukraine and our involvement in it? Probably they will, uh, would be my answer. Um, okay, let me touch on this point that you raised about um, basically control on the Internet. Uh, because an interesting speech yesterday by the head of the CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television Commission, which kind of monitors and to some degree controls the airwaves uh, in Canada, and that in includes uh, uh, the Internet. I'm not sure how much controlling they're doing, but they're suggesting, at least in this speech, that there are going to be more controls, and yet they will not impact freedom of speech or freedom of expression. I don't know how you fit those two things together, how you can have both. Well, it's an interesting uh, debate for me to watch because I think for a lot of people who may not have spent as much time as you or I or, or some of our listeners kind of following public policy and politics, it can be easy to assume that there has been no regulation of speech, no uh, no ways in which speech is constrained in Canada. And of course, that's not true. Um, there have always been rules about what can be said on public airwaves. There have always been regulations that are uh, uh, associated with the giving of licenses to broadcast entities uh, that require them to adhere to certain standards. Um, and so we've always uh, bought into as a society the notion that that uh, you can't use public airwaves to say anything that you want because we understand that um, 
Uh, there's advantages, both economic in terms of and technological in terms of building up a critical mass of a broadcast infrastructure and telecommunications infrastructure. And you only get to do that if you regulate it and you create an industry that can thrive in that area. But also that there are there are certain things that if there aren't rules against saying them or purveying them, that it will cause harm to society. So uh, the basic idea of some constraints over speech is a settled dispute for most people, although it feels in the hands of some politicians in the United States and a few in Canada as well, as though it's a completely new idea that it's sort of fallen from the skies. And we're, we're looking at this idea for the first time and, and how outrageous it seems that, that Ottawa or anybody would want to constrain what we might want to say. Um, and, you know, be that as it may, I mean, I think most people are kind of now saying, well, okay, if we need some guardrails, what should they look like? How extensive should they be? Who should decide them? Should the politicians get to decide them? Or should we have this kind of regulatory body that's a little bit arm's length from uh, politicians, which is the CRTC in this case? Um, as I said, I'm happy to see a vigorous debate in Canada. Just as a citizen, I think this is not something that should be done uh, undercover or uh, should not provoke a good debate. Um, but I think on balance, the idea of the politician deciding day in, day out is a bad idea. The idea of a regulator is a better idea. And the idea of no regulation is a bad idea. And I think all we need to do to answer the question for ourselves, and maybe some people will have different answers than, than I will, is if we look at the internet and the history of the internet in recent years, and the CRTC had said yesterday, I think, or the day before, that they've taken a light touch with respect to regulation of online content. And I think that's true. And the question is, has that light touch been on the whole better or would it have been better to have a little bit less light touch? Um, and I come down on the, there's a lot of stuff that's trafficked that has caused harm. And so there is some reason to look for regulations that reduce the amount of harm that can be caused. But to be cognizant of what that can risk in terms of freedom of speech, I think is, good, is, a, is a good debate to have, as I said. The other thing that Where do you come down on this? <laughs> it's a tough call. I, I mean, it really is. I mean, I you look at some of the trash that uh, that uh, traffics on the uh, the internet and and is taken seriously by an astounding number of people. Um, yep. You you go, God, something's got to happen here. Something's got to be done um, uh, to make this. You know, to make to to make this a better situation and a more uh, a situation that uh, you know helps inform and educate people as opposed to twist their minds. Um, there was another thing that happened this week, which it'll be interesting to see whether it has an impact or the government's moving finally on this bill that they couldn't get through the last parliament and they've made some changes because it was quite controversial. But one, the suggestion seems to be that they're going to ensure that social media companies, the, you know, the Googles, the, uh, the, uh, the Twitters, the Facebooks, whomever, um, have to pay for the content they move through their system. 
Um, in other words, pay to you know legitimate news organizations when they sort of push something out from the Globe and Mail, say for example, um, that they've got to pay for that, uh, which they. Uh, there have been some arrangements in the past uh, for this that have been done on an individual basis, but this would be the law. And one assumes that would have an impact because they'll want to make revenue, um, the news organizations, uh, and they'll be on top of ensuring that, uh, that they're paid for what's used. It could work both ways. You know, the social media companies will either you know, pay for what they use, or they'll go elsewhere to get what they can for nothing. And that's where the trash works in. So I don't know. I, well, I, I think there's a, I think there's a fair bit of uh, content that already exists that, you know, that fits that category that you just mentioned at the end. So that part is happening. Um, and uh, so there's that question of whether or not more should be done to to put parameters around that content. I do happen to think that if uh, if I want to post a story on Facebook that I read in a newspaper and the newspaper paid to have that story written, researched and written, um, then if we expect to have uh, news organizations, then we need to create a value chain that allows them to get some revenue from that. I don't think there's any, you know, any other way to look at it. Um, if we don't, um, and we're simply relying on, well, they need to distribute hard copy newspapers or have people go to their news sites. There aren't very many news organization sites that can survive in that kind of mode. And there aren't very many physical newspapers being picked up by people at newsstands anymore. So we're really in a situation where our choices are to pretend that nothing's changed and to know that what will happen is the number of news organizations will, will wither. Uh, The number of organizations that create content that's designed to get clicks which isn't necessarily the same as news as you would define it. And as you spent your career developing it, it's more like what will make people excited, angry, frustrated, divided, tense. Um, That will grow. Um, To some degree, I think that's what we've been seeing. And I don't consider that to be all the news that I need uh, just as a member of society to make wise choices. And I think this is the crux of the, the dilemma for reasonable politicians is to sort of watch this happening to see what's happening. The version of it south of the border where that representative Marjorie Taylor green yesterday was, you know, was on Twitter talking about the Democrats being pro pedophile. And, you know, at every stage there's one more shock where we see that kind of thing. And we wonder, are we losing our ability to be shocked by it? Um, and we look at the United States and we say, well, they're, they seem to be losing their ability to be shocked by it. And they're not doing anything about it. Um, the race to the bottom of that conversation is not slowing down. It's gathering pace. And I think we need to look at our society and say, is that what we want to see happen here? Do we think that there's a chance that it will happen here? Does the whole thing that we saw with vaccinations and blockades, uh, is that a kind of a warning sign for us? Um, There's a whole conversation about freedom 
um, a Trojan horse for a lot of these ideas that freedom means I get to say, I don't like the color of your skin or the, the faith that you choose, or you say that, um, your sexual orientation shouldn't be something I have an opinion about. Well, what if I have an opinion about it? So I, I, you know, I hate to sound like that old man yelling and waving his fist at the clouds, but some days I go, you know what guys, like we got to pay attention to this. It's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. We're going to take our break, but um, you know, you used a phrase in there a couple of minutes ago that we don't hear often anymore, newsstand, right? Which used to be such right. a big deal, right? The newsstand, whether there was, it was one on the sidewalk. I can remember when I would be traveling in Europe a generation ago when, you know, the newsstand in the, in the city square of, of big European cities was like, there was lineups at it because you were getting, yeah. you know, the New York Herald Tribune or whatever it was, which would give you everything from the day's news stories in English to the baseball scores on the day before, you know, like it was a big deal. But even, yeah. in, even in our hometowns here in Canada, you know, the store that had the big selection of newspapers, not just from across Canada, but from across the world, that was a big deal. Oh, I used to love going to the one in the Glebe. You, used to, you yeah, probably yeah. used to use that one as well. You can go in there and pick up whatever you wanted, and you'd have a chat with the dude who ran it, and <laughs> you'd talk about the politics of the week, and he'd probably tell you what he thought about your show that week. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it was a uh, – there was a dynamic to it, and, a, and uh, it's harder to replicate that these days for sure. Now we really do sound like those two guys in the balcony of the Muffets or whatever it was. All right. You know, we got living in a different place. world. Uh, okay. We got to talk COVID because, you know, just as, as we were talking, I saw Wait, that. You said you, you wanted to take a break and then I didn't let yes. you. Yes. No, we're going to take a break. All right. You know, one of those quick pauses. But when we come back, we're going to talk about COVID again because it's coming back. It's coming back. I see the bulletin that just crossed the wires. Well, it's not really a bulletin. It's a information piece. You know, worries of more school disruptions are rising alongside COVID-19 cases. Man, go away. Leave us alone. Mm. Back in a moment. Welcome back. You're listening to Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on the Bridge. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. You're listening on Sirius XM Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. You know, yesterday um, we were talking to Dr. Lisa Barrett here on the Bridge, and and the headline yesterday was basically governments are are leaving us to make up our minds on our own about what we want to do. Now, the indications today that they're coming out with a fourth dose, you know, a second booster, <clears throat> that's good. But uh, the whole masking thing, people are almost afraid to say you got to wear your mask, but you got to wear your mask. They're letting people, you know, um, go into big public places, arenas, sports arenas, uh, without masks if they want to. You make up your own mind about that. Meanwhile... Crunch, crunch, crunch. The latest Omicron variant, BA two, whatever it's called, is uh, made its making its way in big numbers. 
uh, initially in, in Europe and in the UK, and now it's starting to make its move uh, here in North America, both in the Northeast United States and across different parts of Eastern Canada. So that's, um, that's for real. That's not smoke, mirrors, and the truth. That's, that's what's happening. So what are governments going to do? Are they just going to sit back and uh, let it roll over us? Is that the point at which we've arrived? I think the question uh, for the Omicron wave, and it will be the same for this one, is that they probably will, uh, they probably will sit back unless and until they start to feel that hospitalization rates are becoming such a big problem that um, more needs to be done to keep the health system from collapsing. And of course, you and I are probably looking at the, uh, at the data coming out of uh, the UK and um, the UK data is saying the hospitalization rates are going up. And if that starts to happen here, I think it's going to change the political calculus right now. I think there are some politicians who are looking at this from the standpoint of the, you know, if we imagine kind of political cowardice and political courage, at opposite ends of the spectrum, the public wants this pandemic to be over. And so the default setting for the politician is if it's not really going to kill people because the vaccines have, have done such a good job, then maybe we don't want to be those politicians who look like they're keeping mandates in place. On the other hand, it does take some courage and probably some important courage to look at the situation and say, with the rising number of cases for vulnerable people and for children who can't be vaccinated yet, we need to do more to protect them. And I feel this quite acutely because I've got two grandkids and one is four and the other is four weeks. And so I'm in Ottawa and the, the COVID is ripping through this community and I'm going into stores and in some stores, a hundred percent are mass and in others it's 50% and in others it's 25%. And there have been events here. I won't name the places, but where, you know, a bunch of people got together and a hundred people apparently uh, picked this up. Now, most of those will be mild cases, but for the people who can't be vaccinated or who have uh, other underlying health issues, that risk is really real. And your, you know, your point about the politicians have basically said, the provincial politicians, especially who control these decisions, have said, we're not going to do anything right now. They haven't ruled out doing more in the future, but so far they're not. And I think we're right on the cusp of um, will they need to or not? And I don't think we'll know the answer for several days, but I think a lot of people are already personally making choices that reflect a higher degree of anxiety uh, than was the case a week or two weeks ago. Well, I, you know, I know for a fact um, that there are a lot of the, you know, the, the doctors, the epidemiologists um, who have been advising government who, who are, are not in agreement <laughs> what government's doing and they're quite upset not 100 percent. some you know some clearly are making the the case the same case the government is making but a lot of others because i've talked to them they they tell me you know both uh, you know and i'm talking to a lot of them in different parts of the country 
and they're just they're frustrated by what politicians are doing and they're they're they are convinced that the political agenda especially in provinces that are uh, <laughs> they see an election in the next year got a little bit spooked by the convoys etc cetera, etc cetera. um they're not calling the shots the way they were calling the shots a year ago in terms no. of what what the values were that they were considering well i think they also are cognizant of the fact that the bulk of the data up until maybe the last week or so seemed to be saying a lot of people are going to get it and a lot of people who get it are not going to be terribly sick and there's and and the vaccines may have been the the factor that had the most to do with that so if you're a politician and you're kind of watching how they the last month of lockdown felt and the degree of social tension that existed, the way in which the convoy and all of the related kind of freedom uh, opinion developed. You may remember, Peter, our polling showed that, well, a lot of people didn't like the convoy. Uh, uh, More people than we might have expected associated themselves with the idea of, I want some of my freedom back. This was just a manifestation of feeling too constrained for too long, not logical necessarily, not people saying, I think it was wrong to constrain my behavior or I don't want rules, but I'm just desperate to, you know, have less constraints in my life. So I think the politicians who are, who are at risk here or worried about their electoral situation are probably being very, very careful and erring on the side of not imposing any more restrictions. And so it might be an error and it might be an error that they come to wear and to regret and that we all come to wear and regret. But so far, I think they're taking solace in the fact that um, most people know somebody who has COVID or had it recently and for whom the health consequences were not that severe. Now, let me just say before you get a whole bunch of mail, <laughs> that is not me saying that's what people should think. All right. But that is what I think has been happening. I, I will say this on the part of uh, governments. Uh, some have been uh, trying to ride both sides of this issue uh, very carefully while, while reducing the restrictions, if you want to call them that, um, they're also ensuring that there is, you know, the, the ability to, um, you know, protect yourself. Um, and it's on hand and it's available uh, in good numbers. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking specifically of, uh, you know, Quebec, Ontario, BC, um, you know, the, the, the whole idea of a second booster, the fourth vaccine, um, it's going to start rolling out like almost immediately for certain age groups. Yeah. Um, they've extended the kind of free test kits that were being available in certain, you know, like grocery stores and drug stores. They're uh, extending the time. They were supposed to end up, you know, I think at the end of March. Now it's extended into midsummer. So they are doing certain things while at the same time doing other things that don't look like they're in any way controlling the spread. Um so they, you know, we we are at that point where you know, a lot of people just say, "Hey, I'm, you know, I've resigned myself to knowing that I'm going to get it, 
and I'm just, you know, I've, I've, I'm fully vaccinated. I'm boosted up. It's not going to kill me. I'm convinced it's not going to kill me because I've done all the right things. So if I get sick for a week or 10 days, then I get sick for a week or 10 days and move on with life. I don't know. That's, I guess that's what freedom is. I make that call. You, you want to say something else before I go to our quick last topic? No, let's go to the last topic. <laughs> okay. Um, tomorrow's budget day. Mm-hmm. Now, budget day used to be a, like a really big deal in Canada. Not that long ago. They used to have budget speeches in prime time. It would be big network specials on all the television networks. Everybody would be dressed in their fancy budget clothes, and all the different special interest groups would turn up. Well, some of that still happens, but it happens in the middle of the day or 4 o'clock, right after the markets close, so as not to impact markets. But it is kind of just the basic highlights. It's kind of the first sentence of, uh, of individual programs. But a lot's placed, a lot of value is placed on the budget discussion, and we'll have a big talk about it on Good Talk this week, later this week, when Chantel will join us, I'm sure. But is it also an example of smoke mirrors and the truth in terms of budget day? I mean, is it really just a big PR exercise? I actually think it's kind of a small PR exercise relative to what it used to be, but it is a small PR exercise surrounding an important part of the political process. Uh, there needs to be a budget. It needs the budget needs to turn into pieces of legislative activity that then get debated and passed or defeated in parliament. And the budget allows the rest of the world outside of government to have a closer look uh, than they do at any other point in the year at the financial situation and to hear what the government thinks is the forward-looking um, path of the economy. So I, I do think it's a really important thing. I do think in the past there has been more, there was more effort to uh, add the hoopla to create that sense of excitement and drama and everything else. And I was just, um, I was just looking at, you remember when uh, Mike Wilson had that budget, I think it was 1986. So this is going back a long way. Hard, hard, hard to describe Mike Wilson as dynamic and hoopla. Right. So, but Doug Small, who was a global TV reporter, right. got a copy of the budget and ran a story about it. And it turned into this giant scandal. And I guess there was, you know, maybe there was even a court case. And, uh, oh, yeah. and it wasn't even a copy of the budget. His cameraman in taking the, right. pre, the, right. the pre-budget day pictures of the finance minister with his, you know, feet up right. on his desk getting ready, saw a copy of the budget. And in, in one shot, it, it sort of a glimpse in a corner, saw something about a hundred, I think it was, a, let's say it was a hundred million dollar, you know, deduction on something. And the, <laughs> they, oh, yeah. they had to change the budget. Had to, had to rewrite that sentence. That's right. And so fast forward to today, and I, you know, open up the news site that I use uh, to sort of see what's going on. And there's there are stories there that are pretty clearly leaks. Yeah. Uh, and not 
accidental leaks, not somebody with a camera kind of shooting from a distance, catching a piece of information. But, you know, some years ago, people in government figured out, well, if you if everything in the budget is essentially secret until the budget is read on four at four o'clock on budget day, then what happens to the news coverage of it is you get like 10 percent of the coverage on the substance of the budget and 90% of the coverage is on people having issues with it. Um, saying, I don't like this part of it. This part's okay, but that part sucks. Or, you know, why did they do it? What is the political math? All of the stuff that's other than the, here's how this budget is intended to help people. And I think that governments correctly surmised that it was bad political communication strategy to hold back all of your messaging until the measures are announced in the House of Commons at four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon or whatever uh, the normal day might be, but it's Thursday this time. So I don't think it adds up to that much hoopla uh, relative to, you know, Mike Wilson. I'm looking at this old picture of him with his new shoes. Maybe we'll see some new shoes on Christian Freeland today, but it kind of feels hokey to me to do that. I don't think I would do it if I was her, uh, but I wouldn't you know, be buying uh, shoes at a time of high inflation. That's not the, the signal they want to send. But one thing you can almost be sure, if there's been a constant, for most of the budget speeches that I can recall, back into the, you know, going back a long way, is they're pretty boring in the moment. Like, they, they're, they're, they're yeah. you know, unless they, they make them short, and then there were a couple that were in the sort of 15 to 20-minute range you could watch, but some of them go on forever you know, like an hour, hour and a half budget speeches are ridiculous. Um, and these aren't the great presenters. I mean, you got to think back to, <laughs> you got to think back to uh, John Crosby was probably the last one and his budget was a disaster. The government fell as a result of it, no, no, but at least it was fun speeches. to watch. <laughs> they're bad speeches uh, written in ways that are overly flowery and self-congratulatory and it drives somebody like me crazy because I'm like two, eight minutes, nine minutes, let people kind of absorb what sure. you're saying rather than once you go past that, yeah, they're never like going to follow the whole thing and, and they're not going to get a sense of anything other than that you're, you, you talk too much. You've got to be a serious junkie to watch a whole budget speech. In fact, the networks, yeah. the, the, the rule used to be the networks had to cover them from first word to last word. Now they, they hardly, you know, they drop they in and out away of the from as quickly as possible. That's, That's right. Uh, they're pretty brutal. Anyway, uh, we're going to leave it at that um, with the reminder that this Friday we'll have a special uh, good talk. We'll deal with the budget. It will not be available at noon Eastern, not until 5 Eastern. Long story. I'll explain it again tomorrow. And tomorrow, of course, is your turn. So if you've got thoughts on anything we've talked about this week, send them in. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. All right, Bruce, thanks very much for talking again on Friday. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again in 24 hours. <laughs>